Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, The Sun, the Moon, and the Truth. My name is Natalie Backman, and my co-host is Karina Guthrie. And we're joined today by Kavita Chinayan, who I'll let Karina tell you a little bit more about. Um, but just a tiny bit more about the podcast, our hope and our intention with these conversations is just to shine a little bit of light on some of the aspects of the yoga culture, the yoga world that we live and breathe in that aren't necessarily discussed as richly or as deeply or perhaps even as openly. So just kind of digging in a little bit more deeply and exploring the many facets of what can be considered truth through the lens of yoga. So the, the title for the podcast, The Sun, the Moon, and the Truth, is a quote that I will paraphrase because I'm sure I won't, I won't quote it exactly right, but it's something along the lines of three things will not remain long hidden, the sun, the moon, and the truth. So that's us. Um, feel free to subscribe to the podcast if you love it on whatever platform you happen to be tuning in on. We would also be thrilled to hear any comments, any feedback that you have. So feel free to leave those for us. And you're also welcome to get in touch with us directly if you have any other questions or want to contribute to this conversation in any way. So with that, I will turn it over to Karina. Thanks, Nat. Um, we are really excited to have um, Kavita with us today. Kavita is a cardiologist. She is a professor of medicine, uh, and she also happens to be a, a Sri Vidya initiate. And she's written a bunch of really beautiful books on the divine feminine, on Shakti, and she offers a really wonderful range of study opportunities, uh, including through something called the, the Shabda Institute. And you know, when I first heard about the Shabda Institute, I basically pounced on a membership as, <laughs> as quickly as I could, because, you know, Kavita, for all of your accolades, and there are certainly many of them, I think what I really appreciate about you the most and the reason that I said before we hit record that I've been quietly fangirling you from afar <laughs> for a <laughs> while is that, you, <laughs> is that you just have a really magic way of making the wisdom of this tradition land in a way that feels visceral. You know, I think so often we learn about this text or that teaching and we might have an intellectual understanding of how it applies to us or understand that the idea is a, a great one. But I feel like whenever I personally listen to you speak or teach, I always feel like those same texts and those same teachings kind of take up residence inside of me and sort of stitch themselves into my life. So for that reason, I couldn't be more happy to have you on the podcast today. I know that Nat feels the same way. Um, and I might hand over to Nat to get the ball rolling with the questions that we plan to pepper you with today. <laughs> Thank you so much, Karina, for that very sweet and generous introduction. It is, um, it's really the, the most uh, beautiful uh, compliment for somebody who's teaching is that you know, when somebody says it actually connects with you. And um, that's what you do. That's what both of you do in your um, 
you know, in your teaching endeavors. So it, it means a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> so diving in, um, as Karina mentioned, you are uh, an initiate of the Sri Vidya tradition. And a lot of the students that we work with, a lot of the people that will listen to this have heard the words Sri Vidya, but very few of us have much of a concept of what that actually means. What is Sri Vidya? Maybe some of the history around it. Um, and I, I expect that there's some bits of it that can't really be revealed. So we completely honor that. But I would love to hear you speak to whatever aspects can be shared to just help us kind of sneak our way in a little bit more to um, an understanding of Sri Vidya and what it is. That's a great question. And, you know, I think we could spend hours and days talking about what Sri Vidya is because there, it isn't really one thing. So Sri Vidya, uh, you know, literally translates into auspicious wisdom or auspicious knowledge. And Sri means auspicious and Vidya is knowledge or wisdom. And Sri Vidya refers to this, this um, path uh, of uh, knowledge um, that is extremely um, heterogeneous in the sense of its tradition and, and how it has been taken up and, and so on. So to give you a, a very brief understanding of, uh, you know, the history, it, um, it's, you can think of Sri Vidya as being really very deeply connected to uh, Shaiva Tantra, you know, and basically coming from this very ancient text called uh, Vamakeshwara Tantra. And that's where you see the, the seeds of Sri Vidya as this path of um, understanding reality in a particular way. And that is that has to do with, um, you know, reality being a projection or a, an embodiment of Devi, you know, of Shakti in different aspects. But then that text particularly kind of goes off into uh, siddhis and attainments and how to, um, you know, achieve this or that supernatural power and so on. So what happens is sometime in the eighth century or so, um, or maybe even before that, the, this, this text was uh, translated by some of um, the Kashmiri pundits, you know, and, and given a commentary. Now, way before this, we see in the Tirumandiram, which is an a, you know, ancient Tamil text, a reference to Sri Vidya. Now, to add to this bit of uh, complexity, Sri Vidya also refers to the central mantra of this tradition. Okay, Vidya is the feminine of mantra. So, you know, whenever we talk about mantra, mantra can be masculine or feminine or neutral. In that's part of the Sanskrit language. So, a, a mantra that has a feminine um, quality or a feminine grammar kind of connotation to it is also known as vidya. So, Sri Vidya actually also refers to that central mantra of what we now call as Sri Vidya. 
And there's a reference to this mantra in the Tirumantiram, and that is probably the earliest reference to Sri Vidya. And then comes this Vamakeshwari Tantra, which is now, you know, uh, given a commentary and translated and and worked on by the Kashmiri Pandits. And then it starts to take on a flavor of its own through the integration of some of the Shaiva Tantra elements, particularly, you know, the Pratyabhigna school of Kashmir. And so when you look at the history of Sri Vidya, there is there are these things called Amnayas or these portals. You know, there is the northern portal, the southern portal, the western, eastern portal, and then, and, you know, many different Amnayas. And each one will have its own tradition, its own rituals, its own kind of philosophy, and its own way of approaching this Vidya or this knowledge. So you can be, say, from the Uttaramnaya, which is the northern part of uh, India, and say you're a Sri Vidya Upasaka or you're a Sri Vidya practitioner. And I can be from the south and say I'm a Sri Vidya practitioner. And that's all we'll have in common. You know, we'll have some texts in common. We'll have the mantra in common. And of course, the Sri Chakra, which is the central part of the Sri Vidya. But beyond that, you know, your tradition can be completely different than mine. And so these traditions are highly um, specific and they are centered around Guru Paramparas. So all the different lineages and in South India alone, the last time I spoke with my Guru, he said there are at least 32 distinct lineages. And each lineage can be Tantric in its approach or it can be Vedantic in its approach because what happened is as this whole Sri Vidya was being developed, you know, in Kashmir and given this commentary and so on, Shankaracharya, you know, who is the greatest proponent of Advaita Vedanta, was traveling, right, across India and establishing the Shankarmats. And he actually, um, is, it's said that he was highly influenced by this, and he, you know, brought it down to Shingeri, that's where you see the oldest Sri Chakra, and then he established that in every one of the Shankarmats. So um, Sri Vidya is actually practiced also in that tradition. But it's a very, you know, it's a monastic order, right? Um, his, his order was a monastic one. And the way they worship the Sri Chakra and the way they approach this whole Vidya is completely different than how it is prescribed, for instance, for householders. But what we'll all have in common is the mantra. But the way it is approached, the ritual, how even the Sri Chakra is oriented, all of that is highly dependent on the lineage. But the goal of all of this is the same, which is understanding the oneness between Devi, Mahatripura Sundari, who is the central figure of Sri Vidya. She is this goddess who is known as the great beauty of the three cities and there's three cities that's you know it's a very specific thing that refers to you know the three states of consciousness three you know worlds everything in creation is a triad and she is the beauty of that so she is a creator she is also known as raja rajeshwari the empress um who rules over all of creation and um so this the Mahatripura Sundari and her mantra are the same, 
which is the central mantra of Sri Vidya. And that is in common for all the different lineages of all the Amnais. But beyond that, you know, what you may consider Sri Vidya will not be the same as what I consider Sri Vidya because, you know, all of the details kind of differ. Does that, does that make sense? And so the, the goal is the same, which is to understand the oneness between this jiva, myself, my guru, and Devi. So it's all one. That is the purpose of Sri Vidya. And how we get there differs according to the Guru Parampara. And so that is, that's a very long-winded answer, I know, but, but that's the shortest I can provide considering the complexity of what Sri Vidya even is. It's a beautiful place to start because it really <laughs> does give us some context of how expansive it is. And it, it also kind of leans into the nature of this podcast, which is starting to recognize that, that truth is truth, and yet truth can also be expressed in so many different ways. Expressed Absolutely. Exactly. And, and so it says, actually, in one of the, in one, one of the central texts of Sri Vidya, it is known as Parshurama Kalpa Sutra. And one of the central tenets, one of the things that he begins with, you know, the author begins with is uh, don't criticize any other path. You know, because there are many, as you just said, there are many paths and they all may lead to the same thing. So there is no need to critique any other path and say yours is better because that's not true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So, um, Karina, do you want to take it from there? Okay. Yeah. All right. So the next kind of follow-up question, it has to do with Lalita Tripura Sundari and understanding her as reality, as, as absolute reality. Um, and we're just curious if you could maybe give us a little bit more of an introduction to her and Specifically, we're really enthralled with the description of her engagement with the world as playful and as um, taking delight or, or being both the source of delight and experiencing the world as a source of delight. So tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so when you look at Shakta, Shaktism, right? Shaktism is... is the um, the stream of um, an Indian tradition that is centered around Shakti. Uh, we can say divine feminine, but Shakti actually technically means power, right? It is, it is power. Shiva is auspiciousness and Shakti is, is power. So the first thing to kind of lay down is, is this fundamental understanding of Shiva and Shakti because there's, there can be a lot of confusion around that, right? So whether you're talking about Shaivism or whether you're talking about Shaktism, the fundamental principle of both of them is that Shiva and Shakti are inseparable. As, you know, it's known as Shakti and Shaktiman. So Shakti is power and Shiva is Shaktiman, the holder of Shakti. So Shiva himself is completely without attributes. You know, that he has no attributes, no qualities. 
everything that Shiva does or is is Shakti. So his his countless attributes, infinite attributes, are Shakti. So he is the ground of being, whereas Shakti is the power of being. So it's a it's a very simple way of looking at that. He is formless, transcendent, and Shakti is form and imminent. So you can't separate them, which is why one of the central things that you see in these traditions is the um, image of Ardhanarishvara, where you know there is this deity who is half Shiva and half Shakti. You you know to even say that Shiva and Shakti are in union. Um, to me is like a misnomer because that that denotes that they are actually separate and they're coming together. Whereas Ardhanarishvara takes that out, you know, it's, there is no two coming together. It's one, you know, being uh, understood as two halves of the whole, right? And, and they're not even really halves. They are two holes of the whole. <laughs> so, um, so Shakti then has infinite forms so everything that you can see everything that you don't see uh, everything that you feel and think and you are able to experience is a form of shakti so shakti has infinite forms right and then of those forms so the beauty of shaktism of of these traditions is that you can take her in any form and worship her as such and she will take you to the whole because she is the whole of the whole, right? So she can, whatever that form is. So you, you take her as the form of time and she becomes Kali. You take her as the form of space and she becomes Bhuvaneshwari. You take her as the form of, you know, dissolution and, and absolute nothingness, void. She becomes Dhumavati, you know? So, or you take her as the form of uh, knowledge and, and so then she's Saraswati. And, or you take her as a form of, you know, the lowest of the low, there is a form of it. Uh, there is a form of Devi. The highest of the high, there is a form of Devi, right? And among these, uh, Lalita Mahatripura Sundari is, you know, a very celebrated form of the goddess. So if you look at, you know, all of these forms of Shakti as being a symbolic, uh, you know, representation of a particular attribute, that's kind of gives you uh, an idea of the whole, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you say Kali, for instance, as time, you approach her as this dark goddess who is, you know, doing this or that through that iconography. But what happens is as you go deeper and deeper and deeper into Kali, you see that she is actually all attributes. You know, she is everything because there is nothing that escapes time, right? So when you start, when you align your view with, the understanding of Kali, she becomes Tripura Sundari, she becomes Bhuvaneshwari, she becomes all of creation. And so it is, however you approach the divine, that divine takes the form of everything else, right? So um, Lalita Matripura Sundari is, is, you know, is one of the two kind of streams of Shaktism. So there is a Kali Kula, which is centered around Kali, and then there is the Shri Kula, which is centered around uh, Lalita Devi. Now, why do we have these disparate forms, right? I mean, they're totally opposite. It is to say that you can, you can approach Devi through dissolution, which is Kali, or you can approach her through creation, which is Lalita Devi. And either 
will take you to the same place, right? Like we were talking about earlier. So Lalita Devi, um, there is a huge, you know, um, story itihas around it where she is invoked by the devas in um, this huge saga where you know she is called upon to destroy a particular asura known as Bhandasura. And all of this is in my book, Glorious Alchemy. There's a whole you know story about this, how she comes to be. So the devas have lost the war against the asuras, with Bhandasura being the leader of the asuras, and they are driven away from their place. But most importantly, what happens to the devas in this story is that their juice is taken away from them. You know, their their mojo is taken away from them, right? And so it's not the defeat that bothers them. It is this loss of juice, you know? you know. And when we start thinking about it, this is so applicable to us, right? Because that is depression. Depression is the loss of mojo, where you don't have that, that creative spark is kind of obscured in darkness. And you feel like there's nothing to live for, nothing to aspire to. And that is the state of the devas when they start this uh, yajna. You know, they start this homa and they start putting in all these offerings, nothing happens. So this goes on for 10,000 years. And slowly, by you know, they start to put themselves into the fire. First, their own subtle, you know, thoughts and so on. And then nothing happens. She's still not coming. And then they start cutting off parts of their body. She's still not coming. Then they say to heck with it, right? They start jumping into the fire and saying, sacrificing themselves. You know, it is that 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 moment of despair in that story. That is when she comes out of this yajna, you know, uh, with the Sri Chakra in formation and she's sitting in the middle of the Sri Chakra and she arises, it says like a thousand, a million rising suns. That's the, her brilliance and the cooling effect of a million moons, right? So she is absolute delight. And it's said that when she comes out of this fire in response to the Deva's sacrifice, even Brahma stops. You know, even like this creator stops to see what is going on. Every, like all of creation comes to a standstill because here is this creator of the creator coming out of this fire, right? And what does that tell you? That importance of that creative spark and that creation, that creative energy is Shakti. And that creative energy that is that Icha Icha shakti or the the shakti the power of intention without that nothing happens right that life goes on because of that so she comes out of this fire and these all of a sudden you know the devas are filled with joy and they get their juice back and then she goes on to destroy bandasura but she does it in such a delightful way and she doesn't you know like destroy him she defeats him and then absorbs him back into herself but and gives him back his original form, which is that of Kamadeva. Which means that when you approach Lalita Devi, no matter who you are or how, you know, how depraved you are and how without juice you are, she will take you and she will absorb you within herself and 
convert you back into your original form, which is full of joy and delight and happy to be alive. You know, happy to just be part of this creative process. And, um, and then, you know, she goes on to, uh, she's, you know, Brahma and the other uh, deities, they ask her to take a consort. And she looks around and, and, and she looks at Kameshwara, who is Shiva. Now, Shiva has taken this form of this. He has to match up with her because she is like, you know, the beauty. I mean, she's Tripura Sundari, right? The beauty of the of creation. So he takes a form that is um, that can match her greatness. And, um, and, you know, she takes him as a concept. So Lalita Devi, when we, when we look at the Lalita Sasunama, for instance, it starts at Sri Mata. You know, the first Nama, the first name of the Lalita Sasunama is Sri Mata, which tells us actually there's a whole philosophy of that. Because superficially, it sounds like, you know, she's the auspicious mother. Mata is mother. But there's actually a very uh, delicate play of language there because Ma is also to measure. So she is, the name starts with Lalita Devi splitting off from Shiva to become creation. And then the last name, so this is a whole, you know, you go through 999 Namas where it is basically describing her as all of these forces of creation. And then it comes back, you know, to this origin. And it says in the end, Shri Shiva Shiva Shakyaitya Rupini Lalitambika. So the the last two namas. So she is the, Lalita Devi is the representation of Shiva and Shakti in perfect union. The two holes becoming a whole is Lalita Devi. And as that, she is known as Lalitambika. So she becomes Tripura Sundari, right? And then that Lalitambika is really, she's not separate from Shiva anymore. She is always one with him. So if you look at the Bindu of the Sri Chakra, if you look at the Sri Chakra, you have you know all of these avarnas with all of these different attributes of creation. But the Bindu is that center that holds it all together. And that Bindu is Lalita. She is the beauty of creation that holds it together. And she is the perfect union of Shiva and Shakti. So this is the importance of the Sri Kula, is to understand the delight of creation, to understand the delight of reality. And so it's a very joyful way of approaching Vidya. And you know, my guru says this very beautifully. Uh, he says the difference between Kali Kula and Shri Kula. So he says, if you call on Kali, she will, you know, it's your, imagine a door between you and the other realm, right? And you're calling upon Kali. She'll come to the other side of the door. She is very quick. So she'll come to the other side of the door, but she has no patience to even open the door. So she'll reach in through the keyhole and grab you and pull you through that keyhole, you know, no matter how difficult it is. And she will just imagine going through the keyhole, right? It's very painful. That's how swift and that's her mode of action, right? 
Whereas when you call upon Lalita Devi, she not only does she open the door, she'll play with you. She'll have you come sit on her lap. She'll show you this and that, you know, like mothers are basically, you know, showing the kid here, you know, here, let me distract you with this while I stop your mouth. She's like that. So she just plays with you and, and takes you to that knowledge in that particular way. So they're both doing the same. It's just one is through delight and one is through, you know, get the job done. So that's the difference between the two. <laughs> but eventually, you know, when you go through Kali, you realize the delight of creation. So you realize Lalita and you go through Lalita, you realize nothing exists the way we think it is. So she is also known as Mahakali. So they're one and the same, just different aspects of creation. Yeah. Wow. That was a lot of talking. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we, we, we get like little tiny bits and pieces, little like, like almost appetizers of, of this body of knowledge, this body of wisdom, but we don't, we don't very often get served like the whole meal or at least served more than just one little taste of a, a particular dish. And so to be able to sit here and feel like we're like being fully nourished with this information is just so satisfying. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. You know, it's like, I think you take uh, people, three people like us, and then, you know, we can keep talking about this for days and not not really feel bored, right? And um, that's that just, that. And, and to be honest, that's how this, this, a whole uh, path of Sri Vidya. It's very delightful. It is, it keeps you engaged and it keeps you kind of, uh, you know, in this is, is very um, sweet and, and nurturing and nourishing. At the same time, it's highly challenging because Lalita Devi, even though it may seem like, you know, she's delightful and she's playing with you, she's serious. She means business. All right. And then, so you're, you're, Put your uh, life goes through many challenges, and and as as your sadhana deepens, things happen which you have to be prepared uh, to face. No matter what you're doing and which path you're on, it's going to challenge you because that's the whole purpose of sadhana. And um, and I think for people who are into this path, it's like that constant rumination is really important. You have to continuously think about this view that you subscribe to because otherwise what happens is our vasanas you know our conditioning it's so strong that it will pull you back into you know the superficial kind of stuff and you keep you on the waves you just snorkel at the waves um it won't take you to the the bottom of the ocean where it's still <laughs> so i feel like that uh leads perfectly into uh our next few questions for you. Um, starting with the fact that, you know, I think most people would say that they can see the drama, but not necessarily see the play. And, you know, as we, we move through life. And so I wonder what the, you know, what the missing 
key is there you know how can we remain connected to you know the the delight and the playfulness of Lalita Tripura Sundari but in a way that is sort of genuine you know without falling into this sense of you know spiritual bypassing or mm -hmm. um avoidance masked as as you know sort of false non-attachment or, or or that kind of thing what is the the dance that we need to do for that to be a genuine experience that's a beautiful question and and it gets to the crux of practice you know what the purpose of practice is see for that uh, let's kind of get, rewind a little bit you know how i was talking about there are two paths there's the the path of renunciation and there is a path of the householder right the and and then you both as yoga teachers and immersed in yoga know it, for instance, the the text, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, is a renunciatory text. You know, it, it is basically telling you withdraw yourself from the world in order to go through this inner experience, because that is the way to do it. Right? You you withdraw from the world, and and on the other hand, you know, we we say well. Okay, fine, there is that. But the way it differs from Tantra is that Tantra is not about, re, you know, re renunciation in that way, right? It is actually about finding that, whatever it is that you're finding in renunciation, finding that in absolute engagement with the world. So there's like a fundamental difference between the paths. And so if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, for instance, Bhagavan is actually saying the same thing. You know, he's, he says the, in the beginning of the third chapter, he says, Lokesmin vividha nishta pura prokta mayonak. So he says, at the beginning of time, I created two paths. You know, of course, when you, when you look at the Bhagavad Gita, you may be tempted to say, well, there are 18 chapters, everything ends with yoga, so there are all these different yogas. Actually, that's not true. There are only two. And he says there is the path of action and there is a path of renunciation. That's it. These are the only two paths available to you. The path of renunciation is you leave everything, you go off to a cave and you say, now I'm going to withdraw. Wait, I don't want to be engaged with the world. And the path of action is to be like Arjuna, to be on the battlefield and to engage. But the, but the goal of both is the same. So the goal of both is to understand your true nature, right? What is it? What lies beyond your conditioning? What is your, you know, what is your actual reality? That is the point of both of these approaches, right? So when we say this, a lot of times, we get confused that the householder path means everything is allowed. That it's a path of licentiousness. Nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> right? There is nothing further truth than the truth because 
when we are saying householder path, we are saying you don't have to remove yourself from the world. You have to remove yourself internally from your attachments while being externally engaged with everything. Right? Now you can be a renunciate, you can go off to the cave. That doesn't make you a renunciate. No, right? Because you're still sitting there, you know, simmering in your own stuff. All of your attachments are nice and intact. So that doesn't make you a renunciate because externally you may have renounced, renounced everything, but internally you're very much attached and you are on, uh, you know, on everybody's leash, basically, right? The leash of the world. Whether you're a renunciate or whether you're a householder, internal renunciation is the key. You know, and, and in the Lalita Sasranama, um, Devi is known as Nirmama. You know, Nirmama. Mamata Hantri. It's, it's part of the same verse, actually. Nirmama Mamata Hantri. So she has no, she's completely devoid of self-interest. Which is why she is able to destroy self-interest. Mamata means self-interest. It's attachment. So uh, Mamata is considered to be very, you know, very desirable quality for women, for instance, because it makes you attached to your children. Right? It's, it makes you do whatever it is. And when you see animals and the way they behave with the young and all that, now, of course, there are hormonal pathways that drive that, but that is known as mamata. But that is what actually keeps you bound in samsara. You know, that mamata, that attachment and that self-interest where, you know, your kids, for instance, become, you know, your unfulfilled dream, basically. You're so attached to them that you can't let them go. You can't let them lead their own life. That is that mamata. And she destroys it. But she can destroy it because she herself is devoid of it. Now think about that. You know, when we say mother, we are thinking, oh, she's so compassionate and this and that. But what we don't understand is compassion also has to do with, you know, detachment. You have your true compassion actually arises through absolute non-attachment. Otherwise, it's attachment masquerading as compassion. So this question you were asking, you know, how do we engage or how do we come to that without actually bypassing, without doing all that? That is the trick. It is to be engaged in the world where you're not avoiding anything. But at the same time, that very stimulus is taking you beyond itself. You're transcending it. So whatever your current situation is, your current problem is, your itch is, you, that itch becomes the path to transcending that itch. And so that's why it said Tantra is, you know, this path of this principle that it is the path that takes you up. It's a path through which you fall is the path that takes you or that rises you from it. So um, it's a very tricky thing to stay in a situation without bypassing it. And yet using it without becoming attached to it. And how do you do that? That is where a teacher is so important because we, with our own conditioning, a lot of times we think that we are not bypassing. We think that we are doing something with the greatest intention, but you know, that's always clouded. You know, we, uh, we don't 
sometimes, not sometimes, the majority of the times we lack the discernment to know the difference. And this was why a teacher can point that out and, you know, show us in our daily kinds of activities, what we are doing and what, where we need to course correct continuously so that we're not doing either of those things you were talking about. Does it make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And it makes me think of something that um, I think I've heard you say before, and it sort of really made me think about it, which was, and I feel like it's especially relevant, you know, at this particular moment in time, where we have this tendency, you know, even within, you know, yoga communities, or especially within yoga communities, where we're debating, you know, what is most true or what is, you know, the, the right way to be in the world or, or, or that kind of thing. And then we fall into the trap of uh, thinking that we're transcending our conditioning, but actually uh, tr truthfully defending our conditioning. And I've heard you say that, you know, if, if there is a battle at all, it's not for whose conditioning is most right but for the understanding that the journey for all of us is to transcend that conditioning altogether. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and you probably heard me say, right, that, you know, one of the things that, you know, this view teaches us is that we are all deluded, right? It's just a matter of degree. And so, you know, it's when we, when we see that Maya has the ultimate you know, word. <laughs> she has the ultimate word in everything. She has a final word. So we're all deluded. And and this is why it's so important that discernment, you know, when you when we look at, for instance, Vedanta, you have the bird of jnana, you know, the bird of knowledge. And that bird has two wings. One is discernment, viveka. The other is dispassion or non-attachment, which is vairagya. You need both. Actually, you need viveka in order to cultivate dispassion or vairagya, and you need vairagya or dispassion to cultivate viveka. You need both. And um, so a lot of times when we think, you know, we are we are discerning between the subtle things, you know, and, and as we progress in sadhana, the, what we need to discern between becomes more and more and more subtle, you know. Uh, for instance, it's very easy to sit in a room and say, well, of course, I'm, I am here and the objects, these physical objects are here. There are these external objects of the world and I can discern between them. And then you have to, and then you, when you, that discernment starts developing, you start to see that there is a subtle difference between this thought and this thought within yourself, right? And then you're able to discern that there is a, there's a different difference between energy and the and thought about it. So the, there's a difference between an event and your reaction to it. And the two are actually not connected. So if you can keep your attention just on the event and not your, you know, feelings around it, you become a lot more pragmatic, right? But for that, you have to be able to discern between the two. You have to know what is your filtering of it and what is actually happening right so there is that and then as it becomes more and more subtle you start to differentiate actually between 
what the actual subject is and what is the object that the subject is apprehending. And that becomes more and more non-dual, where you say, well, what am I actually? If I'm not any of these attributes, right, then what am I? And if without attributes, what can I possibly be? I, I, I can't really apprehend myself because I'm not an object. But you come to it in a very methodical fashion. And that, that cultivation of that requires Viveka, but it also requires Vairagya, right? Because if you're really interested in the drama of a situation, you're not going to be able to tell whether your discernment comes from your love of drama or the actual situation. Right? So cultivation of the dispassion where you don't really care about how you feel about it. You're able to set it aside and see the truth for what it is. And then it doesn't matter who is in that argument. You're very interested in the actual event. Say now I'm, if I'm in a disagreement with someone. Ordinarily, what happens is I'm very attached to my opinion. And I'm, very, I'm going to become very emotional about it and become very sentimental. How can you say this to me? So there's a lot of coloring in that, right? But if you can set that aside and just focus on the energy of that and say, ah, look at that now. Here it is arising as this. When this person speaks, this is how my energy is coming up. And you're able to set aside how you feel about it, but you are actually able to see it, right? But to set aside that, you have to cultivate this passion. Because if you're really very passionate and interested in your drama, you're not going to be able to set it aside because your opinion is so important. Right. So, um, so this, this cultivation of that discernment, you know, is what keeps you in this understanding that it's ultimately not about how you present yourself to someone. Of course, that's important. You know, it, all of that is very important. But in, to be internally free is to understand that I really don't care what you think about me. I'm going to behave in a socially acceptable manner. But in reality, I don't really prescribe to any social norms. I don't really care. You know what I'm saying? So there is a dichotomy there where, you know, you're behaving in a certain way. Now it says in actually in um, the Kaula Upanishad, for instance, it says, outwardly, you behave like a Vaishnava. Right? In your rituals, you're a Shaiva. And internally, you're a Shakta. That's the way a kaula charan behaves. You know, kaula tantra is another huge topic, but externally, nobody knows that you are actually a shakta because you're adhering to all the norms. But internally, you're completely free of it. That is that renunciation I was talking about earlier. So I'm only interested in all of these events, including my own drama as the observer, where I'm extracting the juice out of it and I can only do that as this Upasaka of Lalita Devi if I'm completely dispassionate about how I feel about it. Right? So, so many paradoxes. In order to actually enjoy your, you know, in order to be actually engaged fully, you have to be detached from it. <laughs> yeah, and that's where that sense of play comes in in that you can observe the different interactions and you can observe the things that are happening in the world 
free of your own emotional reactions to it and just yes. kind of take it in almost as though watching a movie from afar and just seeing it all play out without the direct personal impact. Exactly. And, you know, Abhinava Gupta says that, you know, there are all these rasas, you know, there are the nine emotions, rasas, the nine rasas. But actually, there are eight. The ninth is ananda. And it, it is that, um, you know, the underlying thing. So the one of the, you know, one of the overarching kind of themes in non-dual tantra is that we say that there is that there are all these levels, for instance. You say uh, Lalita Devi is, you know, she is the three states of consciousness, waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. But as those are the imminent qualities, but she is also the transcendent Turiya. You know, so she, so there will be all of these categories. So Devi will be all of that. And then there is an overarching category. She's also that. You know, she's that transcendent and she's also the imminent. So here, when we say, for, for instance, you know, that um, when we are talking about, uh, you know, the, the, Rasas, for instance, Ananda is the overarching one, which underlies all of the Rasas. But in order to, in order to experience, say, for instance, the the Rasa of Shringara, you know, which is the Rasa of um, beauty and and playfulness and sweetness and and love and and lust, actually. So, if you want to experience that, first you have to detach yourself from it. You have to be in that vibration of ananda so that you think of it as a baseline frequency. Within that, you are going to be able to experience this particular rasa. But if you don't have that, right, there's just a whole big confused, you know, ideation coming from, I like this, I don't like this, I want this, I don't want this, you know, that anxiety inside. So ananda is that, um, that you know, that, that sweet calmness it is always there and then superimposed upon that are the other eight rasas that can be enjoyed and that is actually that that sadhana of lalita day <laughs> no, i don't know about you but i feel like my whole life is being spoken to right now <laughs> every aspect things that are currently arising for me it's like you're just going in and like playing this key on the piano and then like oh oh gosh okay <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you're you you're welcome that. yeah go ahead Karina did you have a um another question or a follow-up well not not so much a question but I was just thinking you know sort of listening to you speak that it feels like that is a really um kind of lovely exercise in dispassionate self-compassion in a way, because I, I feel like so much of that, when it comes to our own internal experience, that attachment avoidant thing that comes up is this feeling like the thoughts that I have are mine and I should or shouldn't have them, or the feelings that I have are mine and I should or shouldn't have them. But when you sort of take that different viewpoint of, uh, sort of that detachment that allows you to step into and out of experiences that are more universal. There's less of that uh, identity identity creation. Uh, exactly. 
wrestling match that we have with ourselves. And so we can allow all of these experiences to flow through us fully and to let go of them at exactly the right time. Yes, absolutely. Now, um, do either of you have kids? I have a stepson. Okay. So um, I don't know how it was for you, but, um, you know, when, when I had my first kid, you know, when I had my first daughter, the, this feeling I had at the, at the time, which has persisted, you know, um, is when you become a, I don't know how it is for fathers, maybe it's the same, but, you, but you, when you become a mother in whatever way, you suddenly start seeing the whole world as children. You know, it's just, it's, it becomes really difficult or it has been for me to kind of differentiate, uh, to see anybody as, as being, you know, evil, for instance. You know, it's just because you see that that person is somebody's kid too, you know, and, and no different than my kid, right? And, and so, for instance, you see my kids and their friends and, no matter what the political thing is or what's going on, who said, which kid said what to my kid. It's just like you have the underlying thing that they're all kids. They could, they could all be my kids, right? And and like I was saying earlier, we're all deluded. It's just a matter of degree. So what's the difference, right? So what what I'm saying, actually, Karina, to your point is, you know, this practice is like that, you know, where you're able to look at your own thoughts and say, no different than anybody else's thoughts, right? They're all kids. And my thought is not necessarily so much better or so much more unique or special than anybody else's, right? And so when you come to that kind of, yeah, whatever, detachment, like, you know, dispassion, who's thinking what, how, like, who am I to to dictate what anybody else should be thinking like who died and made me queen right nobody <laughs> so you kind of you know become internally detached through this exercise because it's like you become more attached to something else you know it is like um my one of my teachers used to give this example that if you are climbing a ladder you have to go to the next rung stabilize yourself your one foot on that next rung before you let go of the previous rung right it's the same thing it's like when you when we talk about dispassion and non-attachment if you're not attached to something else that's higher it's going to be very hard to give up you know what you need to give up right so it's only when you develop this love, and that's where bhakti comes in. When you develop this love and this devotion for your path, for your, you know, teacher, and for your, uh, you know, whatever it is that you believe in, or your darshana, actually, then everything else becomes less important over time, which is exactly what should happen. You know, that's the whole point of sadhana, right? So. Um, exactly what you said you know where you kind of have this ability to look at yourself as being no different no you know no more or no less than anybody else or anything else yeah it's very liberating in its way as well 
to yeah. be of the expectation of being, you know, something, something special, something unique, something higher than it's just, just let that go and just, yes. just be and allow others to be and stay on the path. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, what happens in spiritual communities, I've seen this a lot, and I think you both have seen this in yoga communities too, is we, you know, prematurely worry how we should be with the world. How should I interact? How should my behavior be? Uh, that's okay. I, I think it, it it's required and it helps to have a certain set of rules on how to behave in general. Just, you know, just don't be a mean person. D don't be a jerk. That's enough. <laughs> but we get so uh, entangled in that idea of how should my self-image be that you're missing the whole point of yoga. The whole point of yoga is to get over your self-image and see that it doesn't exist. It's not to take on this yoga personality that can now replace your old personality. It's not a, um, you know, it's if you think of it as a computer program, it's not like updating your, uh, you know, operating system with another version of it. It's to get rid of it entirely and see that it, you know, that is the cause of suffering. And often we're just rearranging the debris, you know, on uh, in, in our lives and getting rid of one kind of clutter and bringing in another kind. You know, the, we let go of material materialism bring in spiritual materialism and think that's somehow better. And it may be better, you know, in the relative world, but that's not the purpose of yoga. Never has been, never was, never will be, right? So um, I think uh, excessive focus on that is is one of the problems in of modern spirituality. Yeah. Yeah, it just is another way of creating ego and and divisiveness. Yes, exactly. Somehow, because now you're all spiritual, you're so much better than everybody else, right? It becomes <laughs> it becomes another thing for us to get trapped in. And yeah. this is why a teacher is so important. You know, somebody who'll just cut through that and say and reorient you every every day, every minute. And that's why that focus is so important. And I'm a traditionalist when it comes to spirituality. I'm totally, you know, very much for this traditional path of surrender to the path, to the teacher, to the guru, because that's the only way forward. And because I've seen too much of self-deception, I myself have gone through it. And um, and I think it it's a waste of energy and time. And it doesn't get you any faster to your goal. Kavita, I was going to ask this a little bit later, but seeing as you brought it up, I feel like um, this might be a good good um, place for this, which is, you know, I've heard you in talking about the, the Bhagavad Gita and this relationship between Krishna and Arjuna mm -hmm. uh, about the the moment in in their relationship that reveals to us that Arjuna is uh, the right person to receive the teachings from Krishna. And mm -hmm. it's that moment where Arjuna says, you know, I don't know, mm -hmm. help. And yeah. 
sense of being willing as a student to sort of humble ourselves before a teacher so that we can, you know, I, I've heard you say that so often we come to the teacher with a cup that's full and what we hope the teacher will do is to just reinforce everything that we think we already know. And it's so much harder to actually uh, come to a teacher with an empty cup so that that cup can be filled. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you talk about how so often when we think about the teachers that we want in our life, we spend a lot of time uh, wondering whether they're right for us or worthy enough to be our teacher. And rarely do we think, am I ready as a student to receive the teachings from this teacher? And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that and, you know, whatever comes up for you with that. Yeah, and, um, you know, this is such a delicate topic because, to be fair, a lot of teachers have turned out to be, uh, you know, unscrupulous, right, and have taken students for a ride and, and so on. And... And for somebody who's been there in that position, who has trusted somebody and has suffered as a result of it, it it becomes really difficult to to hear this, you know. But and and this is why um, understanding or subscribing to a view a darshana is so important, because when you become aligned with the view, and and paradoxically you can't become aligned with the view until you have arrived at the, you know, at a teacher or a teaching that can do that. And um, it's, a bit of, it's a bit of a catch-22 situation. But that maturity is what Arjuna displays as a seeker. And that, remember, it's, you know, that's one of the fundamental differences between uh, the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita. And the reason I'm bringing that up again is because these two texts are important in yoga teacher training. And I'm sure most people are, you know, familiar with them. The Yoga Sutras gives you, you know, beautiful. This, here is the Samadhi Pada. Here is this. Here is this. This is what happens. Doesn't really tell you how to do it. And when to apply which teaching. It's just like, you know, this is what you do. Right. And so if you see the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna is in the first chapter, he's basically trying to tell Krishna what Dharma is. And he's trying to teach him what Dharma is. Remember, Krishna and and the the irony of that whole bit, which Karina, you may have heard me speak about, is everybody in, in that age, in Dvapara Yuga, during this age of the Mahabharata already knew that Krishna was an avatar of Vishnu. They already knew he was divine. You know, he, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a hidden thing. And yet here they are on the battlefield and Arjuna is giving him a lecture in the first chapter. See, this is how deluded we become, where we forget that the identity of the person in front of us, you know, and that comes from this, this stickiness, this lack of dispassion that I was talking about earlier. We are just so attached and, and you know, married to our own ideas. So he's telling him all this. And then what happens in the second chapter when the actual teaching begins is he realizes, hey, I really don't know. 
And here is this person who knows. So let me submit to him. And because knowledge always flows from the higher to the lower, you know, there's a gravitational effect to knowledge, as one of my teachers used to say. So if you look at the Upanishads, for instance, it's always a dialogue between the teacher and the student. If you look at the tantras, it's a conversation with uh, between Shiva and Shakti. Sometimes he takes on the position of guru, sometimes she takes on the position of guru. But it's always a gravity effect, you know, where knowledge is going from the higher to the lower. And um, that, you know, that point of arrival at that place of surrender is really critical. And it requires a maturity of your mind where you are pliable. You are willing to listen. You know, you have to become like water that can be shaped according to the container. If you are like earth, nothing happens. You know, because you can only be shaped to a certain degree, right? It's as you become more and more subtle, water is the next most subtle at least you have to become like water then maybe fire and then air right so you have to be at least as you know free-flowing as water in order to take up the teaching from the teacher and and so when you actually come to become or you become totally aligned with the view and i can tell you this from my experience which um is all I can say is that it's not that I have not had, you know, less than ideal teachers. I've studied with many, many teachers throughout my life. And at the time, it may have seemed like, well, this is not the right teacher for me. But now, as, as I've become more and more aligned with the view, I realized that there, was, there were absolutely no accidents. At that time, that's all I was capable of. So it was not on them at all. It was all on me. And so at every stage in my sadhana, I found the perfect teacher who pushed me on to the next and the next and the next. So at the time, it may not have been fun, but that's all I was open to. Right? So I have nothing to say about any of my teachers except that even when I thought they were not good, they were exceptional. So I've only had great teachers. And when I say great teachers, people are always asking, so who was your teacher? That's irrelevant. What I'm telling you is every teacher is a great teacher when you arrive at their door, because that's really what you're open to. And, and even higher, do you know when you, there are two levels of truth. There is a relative truth, and then there is the absolute truth. On the relative level, there's, you know, all of this, right? I, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that, whatever it may be. And that's all true because they're still true, right? Relative, absolute. But from the absolute truth perspective, and when you understand karma, for instance, if you become a Kali Upasaka and you understand karma, you see that there were actually no, there are, there's actually no such thing as you know, bad things happening to you. Because at all points, you're reliving your own karma. And Bhagavan himself says that, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, he says, I do nothing. Everything in Prakriti is a 
you know, it's the unfolding and the interaction between the three gunas. And when you come to that understanding, you see that there's really no such thing as a bad teacher. It's my own karma that brings me at the door of somebody. And I really live that karma. And my only, you know, hope is that I don't create more karma in the process. That I do that, I live through it, I pay for whatever it is from unseen lifetimes, and then I move on. And the more you do that, the more free of that you become, and you're taken to more and more and more, uh, you know, um, appropriate teachers, at, even though there are no <laughs> inappropriate teachers, where you grow. Ultimately, everything is about you going towards Lalita Devi and how much you're going to be able to put into that fire, you know, that sacrificial fire, because you have to, you have to give up. And remember what I said about the devas, you start giving up the, the obvious things, then they start giving themselves up. And we have to give ourselves up. And that is that place of surrender. And without surrender, nothing happens. So surrender is the same as anugraha or grace. It's always there. Grace is always there. But surrender is like tuning into that. You know, it's like a, a dial, a radio dial. The more you surrender, the more you tune into the grace that's always there. It's that's there already. So does that kind of make sense? Because it is a uh, delicate topic. It does make perfect sense. I feel like that was a beautiful explanation. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Nat, and do you have any more questions? Gosh, like a billion. Um, let me see if I can narrow it down. <laughs> um, do you feel as though it's grace that guides you to the teacher? Grace is the only thing that exists. That is the driving force of the universe. So Yes, of course, it is grace that guides you to the teacher. It is grace that takes you through your suffering. It's grace that takes you through the tough times. And it is grace that brings you to this path or to any other path. It's always grace, you know? And um, so I think the question you're getting at is, should we be looking for a teacher or, you know, how does it work? Does that, is that where you're going with it? And yeah, I, and I think... The teacher arrives, and it's true, the teacher does arrive, and you're ready for them, you know. And a lot of times, you may have interacted with someone a lot, and but still, you never see them as a teacher, you know. You see them as you, whatever your friend, or your sister, or your brother, or your parent, or whatever, right? Something happens in you. And all of a sudden, that becomes that person becomes your teacher. Same thing from the Bhagavad Gita, right? So Krishna and Arjuna are actually related. They're cousins. They've grown up. They were friends. And he says in the 11th chapter, my gosh, this whole time I've been calling you Madhava, Keshava, whereas you're actually this, you know, this Vishwarupa. You're everything in existence. You're Bhagavan. And I've been calling you all this, this whole time, right? This that is that relationship that reverence changes so a lot of times they may be in your plain sight right they're 
obviously there in your life and you just don't know it and it is when you come to come to it with a sense of softness and when you come to it with a sense of yeah you know i i'm fine i'm willing to learn i'm willing to set aside everything i know that is a critical thing i'm willing to set aside everything i've learned everything i know because a lot of times you know i have people that come to me um to ask for a teaching or whatever and this they they send me like two page emails about everything they've done and why i should you know do something more with that and those are the the people that i actually send along and say i can't help you because you've done so much and you're expecting me to give you something on top of that which is not how it works wherever you go you have to be willing to say whatever i've done so far is fine take it away from me i just want grace anugraha and that is when big shifts happen because arjuna for instance was a great gnani right he had studied everything for years and years i mean he was a powerful warrior and and he was very skilled in so many different things had many attainments and yet he was able to set it all aside and say i don't know teach me right so the teacher does appear every time we set aside our self interest and and say i'm willing to give myself up and it's a very difficult thing in in this age especially modern spirituality because we kind of are influenced by all kinds of things and the idea of surrendering submitting to somebody else is just like you know how can i do that and um of course there are qualities of a good teacher there are qualities of a good student and it's when both are met that the, that magic happens yeah thank you <laughs> that's uh... I feel like so many people when they hear the teacher appears when the student is ready that they feel like they need to do something to get ready. And so we get really attached to all of our doing and yes. we require along the way. And it sounds like what you're saying is that that readiness really comes when we're prepared to let it all go. Exactly. Exactly. It's a paradox. <laughs> It's a paradox and yet it also makes perfect sense. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Karina, any final words from you? No more questions from me. Just a big portal of gratitude from me to you. <laughs> oh. Ditto. Yeah, it's it's such an absolute honor and pleasure to be here with both of you. It's um as you both are radiant and and just delightful to speak with and i think as i was saying earlier the three of us could talk forever on these topics <laughs> i hope that we will <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you both so much for having me here and um it's delightful and i hope it was useful Thank you very much so very very much so if anyone out there gets a fraction of what i was able to glean from this conversation then then we've done something magical <laughs> <laughs> thank you dear ones take good care thank yeah. you shreemat pranamaha